The Post Reports podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. At T. Rowe Price, we examine opportunities firsthand to help uncover the full story for our clients' investments. Put our strategic investing approach to work for you. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, December 18th. Today, Donald Trump closes his charity. Police departments take a hard look at how they investigate murders and a bucket list orchestral performance. The Donald J. Trump Foundation is dissolving. That's the latest news from the New York Attorney General, who had been investigating the charity as part of a lawsuit against Trump and his three oldest children. That's the accusation, that he he treated it as a banking account, as a piggy bank, that was still his to control and his to, and acted like there were no laws about what you could do mo- with money in a charity. David Farenthold has been covering Donald Trump's charitable foundation for years. In fact, his Pulitzer Prize-winning reporting is what launched the attorney general's investigation in the first place. And both David and the AG have settled on this one conclusion. Trump's charity just wasn't acting like a charity. The bedrock law of charitable foundations is that if you're the leader of a charity, if your name's on the charity, you can't use the money in the charity to buy things for yourself, right? The charity, it has to serve other people's aims. Trump's, his donations were all over the place. And the, the theme when you figured it out was, in many cases, they were donations that helped him. They, they were to, a, you know, a friend's charity. They were to buy tickets for some event. The biggest and smallest donations in its history are kind of a good bookend to the way he viewed this charity. The biggest donation in the Trump Foundation's history was $264,000 in 1989 to the Central Park Conservancy charity that helps Central Park in New York. What was happening back then, the Central Park Conservancy was renovating the Pulitzer Fountain, this big fountain at the southeast corner of Central Park, which just happened to face Trump's Plaza Hotel. So he was beautifying something that you could see out the windows of his hotel. He was helping his business by donating to this charity. The smallest donation, and I can, I, for the longest time I could never figure this out, was a $7 gift to the Boy Scouts in 1989. Why in the world would a multimillion dollar, you know, billionaire give a $7 charitable grant to the Boy Scouts? And I think the answer is that was the year Donald Trump Jr. turned 11. Thanks to some readers, I figured out the cost of enrolling your son in the Boy Scouts for the academic year in 1989 was $7. And so you started reporting on this pretty early on when Donald Trump was running for president. At what point did the attorney general's office in New York get involved? So my involvement with this charity began in February 2016. I was there to cover Trump in Iowa. Nobody sent me out to cover Trump's charity. I didn't even know he had a charity. But I went to cover him on the caucus day in Iowa. So he's going around Iowa. And he did this weird thing that I'd never seen a candidate do before, which is he would, you know, he'd be talking about you know, building the wall or whatever. And then he'd say, OK, let's stop my rally. So maybe tell us just a little bit about yourself and what you do, because, you know, we vetted for the vets. But and I want to bring up a local charity up to the stage. You know, let's bring up this group that helps veterans in Iowa City or wherever he was. We train service dogs for disabled veterans to help them. And then he would bring out this giant, like, novelty-sized check. Like the check you get if you win Publishers Clearinghouse or a golf tournament. Like a five-foot-long giant check that said, Donald J. Trump Foundation, $100,000 to whatever the local charity was. And he'd give it to them in front of all the cameras and all the people. And so they would the say, well, you're so generous, Mr. Lot, Trump. Right? <laughs> yes, sir. This is such an honor. It's so great. So thank you very much. Use it well. Then they'd sit down again and the rally would continue. And I thought, well, 
I've never seen anybody do that before. I've never seen a candidate give away money on stage. And I wonder if that's legal. So then I got back to the office and made a few phone calls and found out that basically that sort of thing isn't legal. You're not allowed to use your charity to help your political campaign. Charities can't participate in political campaigns. That's when I got interested in it. And a lot of things flowed out of that. It was not until the very end of the presidential campaign, sometime in September or October 2016, that the New York AG announced their investigation. That effectively froze the Trump Foundation where it was. It hasn't really spent that much money, hasn't really taken in that much money since that investigation began late in the campaign. So now that the Trump Foundation is closing down, they've said that they are still planning on holding the Trump Foundation accountable. What does that mean? Or what could that look like? What they've asked for. So they filed a suit in June, a civil suit against Trump, his three eldest children, Don, Eric, and Ivanka, who are who were all directors of the charity. They were nominally on the board of the charity, supposed to stop it from doing things that broke the law, and also the Trump Foundation itself. So the New York AG asked for the dissolution of that foundation, which is now happening, but the lawsuit will continue. The two penalties that the New York AG is asking for now One is monetary. They're asking Trump to repay $2.8 million in in restitution, money that they believe the charity spent to help him and now he should pay back, plus other millions in penalties. Uh, And they also want to ban Trump and his kids from serving on the board of any other charity in New York State. That's a penalty that's implied to like scammers, people who like use a charity as as an excuse to steal your money. And they would apply that penalty like, you know, sort of a moral turpitude penalty to the president of the United States. So that he could be the most powerful man in the world, but he couldn't be on the like he couldn't be on the board of the Staten Island Little League if he wanted. Was there any money left in the Trump Foundation when this happened? And if so, where is that money going? There was about one point seven five million dollars in the foundation. Some of that has come in in the last year from Trump himself, as he's basically been fighting this case in the courts. He's been paying back the foundation for things that he'll say, you know, yes, I admit I used it to make an improper political donation. I'll put in the money that it spent on my behalf. That will be given away to charities that the judge in this case and the New York AG have approved. There's about a 30-day window for them to make those approvals. So we don't know what those charities will be in. The attorney general's investigation is continuing, obviously. Is your reporting on this going to continue? Certainly. So I cover the Trump organization now, Trump's conflicts of interest, and also the Trump charity. Trump charity hasn't done very much in the last couple of years, so there's not much new to report on. But there's a lot of mysteries in its past that I would still love to find out. Like like what? Well, I'll give you a couple. One would be the biggest funder of the Trump Foundation in the last 10 years was not Trump himself. It was Vince and Linda McMahon, the WWE wrestling moguls. The other thing has to do with this. This is more of just a curiosity, but it's fascinating. One of the things that Trump used his charity's money to buy was a portrait of himself. Actually, he bought two portraits of himself, um, one in 2007, one in 2014. The 2007 one, he paid $20,000 for this portrait of himself. And I don't know what became of it. And and wasn't this a whole thing like on Twitter? You were asking people, like, where's the portrait? Have you seen this portrait in any Trump hotels or golf resorts? Yeah, so I did it with both. So the one, the $10,000 portrait of himself that he bought in 2014, with the help of readers, we found that. We found it hanging on the wall of the Doral Golf Resort in Miami, the Trump owns. And that became a big issue in this lawsuit. The other big mystery is this $20,000 portrait that Trump bought with money from his charity. So it, the portrait belongs to the charity. It's a charitable asset. It needs to be doing something charitable, whatever it is. I don't know where it is. One of my efforts to find it was to look on Google Image Search, to put the picture of Trump's face from this portrait into Google Image Search. Google Image Search thought it was an orange. <laughs> it showed me pictures of oranges. Not very helpful. No, not very helpful. Maybe the AG will figure that out. <laughs> Thank you so much, David. Thank you.
On Monday, we brought you a story from our series, Murder with Impunity, about what it's like to live in an area where few violent crimes are ever solved. And today, we have a story from Post reporter Dalton Bennett about what it's like to police in one of these areas. It begins with the killing of a 24-year-old man named Alexander Brown. One night, Alexander Brown got a call from a childhood friend. His friend wanted him to come along while he made peace with a drug dealer that had been ripped off. Brown didn't want to go, but his friend asked him to come along, so Brown said yes. A family member dropped the two men off at a house on Gladstone Avenue in Indianapolis. As he enters the house, he's immediately shot and killed. Several days passed, and his family became increasingly worried. I mean, Alexander Brown was nowhere to be found. So his girlfriend goes to the last known place where he was at. She shows up at this house. She walks inside, and there is blood and brain matter sprayed all over the walls, but no body. So immediately she calls 911. My boyfriend heard me missing. This is the last house he was at. The house got blood all in it. Okay, do you see? Ma'am, you've got to take a breath from me. Do you see your boyfriend? Within minutes, the police are on the scene, right? But at the same time, Alexander Brown was a guy who's known in the neighborhood. He had a lot of friends and a really big family, right? So everybody came down to the crime scene and they organized a search party. And a local television crew is following them. They come up to an alleyway that's two blocks away that is a spot where a lot of people illegally dump. It's just full of trash. And right there, his own family discovers his body. He's been dumped in the back of a vacant home. The family discovers the body before the police who are two blocks away investigating the crime scene. This gruesome scene was beamed into everyone's home. It was the talk of the city, right? Brown was murdered and his body was dragged in broad daylight and dumped. I mean, the brazenness of this crime it was so shocking. And nobody saw a thing. There were no witnesses that came forward. Two years later, Brown's murder remains unsolved, as have many other murders on the same street. And that raised a lot of questions in the city. This isn't unique to Indianapolis. It's a phenomenon that exists in cities all over the country. So Dalton set out to find out what it was like for a police department to investigate a case like this in an area where the majority of murders are never solved. This is where they were. Their bodies was just thrown out here. And our other sister, she found the bodies. We did our own search party. Had to do our own search party. We found the bodies. That's the victim's mother, Sherry Brown. We have no answers, none whatsoever. In a year-long investigation looking at over 50 of the biggest cities in the country, the Washington Post found that Indianapolis was one of a handful of cities where murder is common, but arrests are not. Violence, if you look at crime, Indianapolis, unfortunately, has been on the map for homicides. That's Indianapolis's police chief, Brian Roach. We've seen a steady increase since about 2012, a significant increase. In recent years, the murder rate in Indianapolis has gone up and the arrest rate has gone down. In the neighborhood where Alexander Brown was murdered, fewer than 30% of cases have led to arrests. Why? Challenges from a law enforcement perspective, staffing and technology. First is the technology. He recognizes that the department may be behind the ball when it comes to the latest technology in policing. 
So yeah, they're here in the book. Detective Marcus Kennedy is a seasoned homicide detective. Inside of the department's homicide unit, he showed me how they're accounting for their murders. That's what number it is, and it's a double case number, um, their home address at the time. He's thumbing through a handwritten ledger that has all the murders that have taken place in the city. And it shows it's unsolved and who the detective is. If it's a solved case or if a motive is known, it's listed here in the book. Behind him is a whiteboard that has the names of all the unsolved murders for the past three years. No detective wants to carry a case that's unsolved. This weighs on you, you know, because you keep getting cases behind it. Technology is just part of it. In Indianapolis, the racial disparity is stark, with arrest rates in the cases of white murder victims almost 20% higher than those of African Americans. You know, I've heard it out there myself, and I'm saying, okay, you got a black male that was killed by black male, and I'm a black detective, so what's my motivation for not doing it? And I've all the years I've been up here, I've never heard one detective even say, oh, it's just a black guy, I'm not going to do anything. It just doesn't happen. That's a myth. There's an expectation that their police department or those public servants look like a representative of the people that they serve. If we just pick African-American, Marion County is 28%. Our police department is 14%. So right off the bat, we don't look like the community that we serve in that area. It doesn't matter where he comes from. Your job is to solve homicides, and that's what you need to be doing. No matter where it happens, that's your job. Do it. Bruce Taylor is Alexander's father. The guys to be affiliated with, you know, guys get killed, they on some revenge type stuff to where they like, I want to catch them for the police, dude. <laughs> you know, being honest, they really don't want the police to get them. They want to go get them themselves, but that's what they grew up knowing. And that's all they know. Both Detective Kennedy and Chief Roach understand that the relationship between the police and many of the communities in their city needs work. Well, I mean, here in Homicide, we depend on witnesses and cooperation from the community. And if we don't get that cooperation from the community, it makes the job that much harder. And then, of course, you know, we're dealing with the prosecutor's office and they want a conviction raid and we're trying to get the best case that we can for them. And without witnesses and other evidence, we're just having a hard time right now. We always talk about evidence, but typically it's someone coming forward and being a good witness. In not all those cases do we get that. We're public safety, right? It's our responsibility to make people feel safe. And the only way to do that, I think, is build relations. And I think we've gotten away from that. This question of improved community relations in areas where unsolved murders take place is something departments across the country struggle with. In the past decade, Indianapolis has only had a 55% clearance rate for murders. Yet Richmond, Virginia has a clearance rate of 71%, one of the best departments in the country for making an arrest. And that might have something to do with their emphasis on improving community relations. Was October 9th of twenty sixteen. Jeff Crewell is a homicide detective in the Richmond Police Department. It was Sunday afternoon, just before three o'clock, when the police department responded to uh, 0 block of West 
East Hill Street for a report of a person shot. I just heard a shot and I, I was like, uh-oh, they're shooting and I said, I'm going to duck like this. And she never said anything. Jean Redwood was with her daughter, Diane Winston, delivering food to a relative in Richmond's north side. And then when I set up, something hit me in the face and the bullet had came through the windshield. And I looked at her and it was a bullet right on the side of her eye right here. You know, just a little bit of blood, but just right in the eyeball right here. When officers arrived on scene, they came into contact with uh, the victim, Camilla Winston. She went by Diane. She had suffered a gunshot wound to the face. She was transported to BCU Medical Center, uh, where she later died from her injuries. Diane Winston was a victim of one of the hardest crimes to solve, an innocent bystander struck by a bullet intended for someone else. Once we establish the location of the crime scene, we begin the process of identifying areas in which people could have witnessed the incident from or areas that could potentially have cameras or any other type of surveillance. So detectives would begin knocking on doors if there's apartments in the area. This kind of door-to-door outreach has had mixed results in the Indianapolis neighborhood where Alexander Brown was killed. The work of patrol officers, they're the front line for any police department. When you talk about your patrol officers, they're out there 24 hours a day, seven days a week patrolling those neighborhoods. No matter where you go, you have to have relationships. Communication is part of that relationship. Trust is part of that relationship. And that's what builds the legitimacy for a police department. Richmond Police Chief Alfred Durham believes it's that trust that is partially responsible for their higher-than-average arrest rate for murder. You know, in police departments, we kind of measure our success or failure on crime. And that's the craziest thing when you think about it. What we're starting to do now is measure the number of community contacts that we have. He says it's those contacts and constant community outreach that builds confidence between police in the community, which encourages witnesses to come forward and share what they know with homicide detectives. A lady I shot, the dude that shot her, his name is Rabbit. I don't know his full name. With a nickname identifying the potential killer, police go door to door. By knocking on everyone's door, they ensure that no one single person is seen talking to the police. Whoever provides information remains anonymous. So uh, so I was sitting in my car and I seen two dudes on my left side walking up on their bikes. And that's how they found witness Kenneth Moore. I heard some shots. So I looked up and I seen a dude shooting. He just walked away, rode over on his bike after that. Not only did Kenneth Moore identify the suspect, George Watson Scott, as the shooter, but he also testified in court. Mr. Moore, the guy who testified, is there anything that you would want us to say to him? Oh, God. I I can't find the words to express my gratitude to him. I, I can't. You know, I'm forever grateful to him. George Watson Scott was found guilty of second-degree murder and the killing of Diane Winston and sentenced to 24 years in prison. He claims he is innocent in appealing the court's decision. For the police, this case demonstrates the importance of fostering relations in communities where murders may take place because at the end of the day, the only way these cases are solved is if a witness comes forward. It was more or less the cooperation of witnesses that made the difference. But for witness Kenneth Moore, there was a cost for coming forward. He and his family were forced out of their apartment and relocated by the police department after he was threatened by friends of the shooter. No, I think I did the right thing. 
you know. Like I say, we live by codes, the street code and all that. But codes rules me to be broken sometimes too. So that's what I did. And I can live with that. And now, one more thing. The story of a retired high school counselor who had her 15 minutes of fame this past weekend. Kathy wrote in and said, well, what I would love to do is play with the National Symphony Orchestra. John Kelly is a columnist for The Post. And recently, he asked readers what was on their D.C. bucket list. Kathy Strickler is 74, and she grew up in Northern Virginia, And her family was not a wealthy family. It was a blue-collar family. And something like a violin was a luxury for them, to have her own violin. She never had private lessons. The family couldn't afford them. She learned to play the violin at school. And she said she never got that good, but she always liked being around music. I included that in my column. And then the NSO reached out to me to get with Kathy to put it together. Kathy, hey, how are you? Nice to meet you. you. Yeah, you too. The NSO invited Kathy to come to Washington. She lives in the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia. And she drove up with her husband, Charlie, and they had in the car this violin that she'd had since she was in fourth grade, the only violin she's ever owned. 65 years old. They'd sent her the music for Sleigh Ride. She'd been practicing Sleigh Ride at home, and then she had a little 15-minute lesson with this professional violinist from the orchestra. And I am actually more excited than scared now after rehearsal. Oh, good. Yeah, I mean, with with Carol. uh, Right, right. We feel, I feel good. She changed the strings on her violin. She said she bought expensive strings for her violin. You know, it gives me confidence. The last time she really played in any sort of symphony was in high school. And so this was the Kennedy Center backstage, all the musicians tuning their instruments and going up and down the scales. And then it was time for them to actually play the song Sleigh Ride that Kathy was going to play on. The orchestra got through that song and then the conductor said that was great but we need to do it much faster. Afterwards, he asked Kathy how it went, and she said she was hanging in there. And then she had two days to go home and practice at home before Saturday's big concert. I didn't want it to stop. I wanted to stay there and keep on playing. I'm, I'm just going to be on cloud nine. <laughs> Kathy Strickler got a standing ovation this past weekend when she played Sleigh Ride during the National Symphony Orchestra's Holiday Pops concert.
That's it for Post Reports. To hear new episodes every weekday, subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app or at WashingtonPost.com slash Post Reports. If you liked what you heard on this episode, it would be great if you took a second to leave us a review or to tweet about the show with the hashtag Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The Post Reports podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. At T. Rowe Price, we examine opportunities firsthand to help uncover the full story for our clients' investments. Put our strategic investing approach to work for you.